Beware the Ides of March has a ominous tone to it. Uh, did you think about it this March as that week passed and uh, that 15th of March presented itself? I don't know if you did. I always think about it because I had a minor role uh, in the Shakespearean play, Julius Caesar. Uh, at the time I was in the play, I was single, but I was dating Abby, and we were new into our relationship, and she was thrilled that I was going to be Julius Caesar. She misunderstood that it was just a minor role, but she was proud to, proud to tell her parents back at home. I always like to bring that back up uh, at times. Uh, but you remember that Julius Caesar was assassinated on March 15th. Uh, on what was called the Ides of March. And uh, what might not be known to us is that there is actually, in the Roman way of thinking, an Ides, an Ides every month. Uh, it kind of incorporates the full moon that presents itself in each of the lunar months. And uh, typically those occur in our uh, close to the middle of the month. And uh, the new moon is uh, a way of kind of keeping track of the calendar year, and the Roman system, this meant that the Ides sometimes fell on the 13th, and sometimes it fell on the 15th, and somewhere either the 14th uh, was a possibility as well. Now, the Ides of March was actually also a notable day because not only was it the first, like the first month of the Roman year, it was also the typical day in which it was the day in which debts were settled. It was considered to be, in contracts, the date in which you kind of marked down that the obligation would be paid by that point uh, in your agreements. And it's kind of interesting that the conspirators who sought Julius Caesar's life would seek to settle old debts with him on that particular day. I do find it very remarkable that every culture that is known, every culture in the world, has some sort of instinct for the settling of debts. Uh, we've received a variety of ways in our own kind of vernacular of how we talk about that. Sometimes we say, well, you know, payday someday, evening of the score, there's judgment day is coming. We kind of all have a sense that that which is wrongly brought upon us will one day be returned, and there's a sense within all of us, and Obadiah reaches for the familiar yet unwelcome message, someday the ride is going to come to an end. We will have to eventually pay the piper, and that there is a judgment day coming, and that in itself is a very unwelcome message. Jeremiah, another prophet, knew this to be the case. Uh, he was a prophet who was prophet in Zedekiah's court. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned King Zedekiah, uh, who was installed as a puppet king by the Babylonians. And when he tried to flee Jerusalem, he was on his way to the Jordan River, and he was apprehended. His sons were slaughtered for his rebellious acts, his eyes were popped out, and he was led to Babylon in chains. Now, when Jeremiah was standing in his court, he heard a false prophet come forward and declare that within two years, the prior king would be released from Babylon, that Babylon would be broken, that the 
the good times would then be here again for Israel. And Jeremiah heard the message, and he said to himself, actually, he said, he didn't use a filter. He actually said it out loud. He said, boy, that would be great. I mean, let it be that the good times would come back again for Israel. May your prophecy roll, basically is what he's saying. And yet, then he cautioned, he said, take note that all the prophets before you and me in ancient days always brought words of judgment, of coming famine, of coming war, of coming pestilence, and we proclaimed that negative message to the nations. And so he said, the prophets that bring peace must actually be verified. Jeremiah walked away from his court. He came back he, to his home, and he received a direct message from the Lord that told him to go back into the king's court and address that false prophet and let that false prophet know that within two years, he was going to, he would actually receive the end of his life sentence himself. He would be caught, killed and slaughtered. And within 18 months, he was gone. Prophetic messages of the end is nigh are not usually welcomed. They're not the kind of things that are positive. They're not the things that put a spring in your step. They're not a feel-good message. But they're important. And if you have ears to hear Obadiah, his is nevertheless also an inspiring message of hope for all who choose to settle their debts now with God and with one another. There is hope for those who turn and place the debts that they have upon themselves upon God, who welcomes people to give their debts to Him. And Obadiah, while he's bringing this message of judgment that is coming, he's telling us it's better to settle our debts now through Christ than later. And this is the idea that I want to emphasize in this text this morning, that it is better to settle your debts now through Christ than later. That's the alternative. When judgment is certain to come, this is the alternative, and what an opportunity this is. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is it that sinners wait? Why do they hesitate? What is it that causes them to pause and not settle with God who is mercifully offering opportunities? Now, Ob Obadiah, he announces what is true and what is coming, and he's calling us to beware the ides of God's justice and that it's better to settle our debts now. Now, this sermon starts here in the Old Testament. I am also going to weave in some of the New Testament. We're going to, in time, also look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and see some relevant texts that talk about judgment and opportunities that we have. But we want to see in verses 15 to 16, Obadiah talking about the great day of the Lord, uh, that's a handle for the judgment that is to come, 
It's set, and it in itself is settled. Although we don't know the day nor the hour, we don't know when this will occur, in the mind of God it is set and it is settled. Verse 15 to 16 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually, and they shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. The ancient scriptures, of which Obadiah is a part, Obadiah had one eye on the, just the near horizon, but he also, as it were, had another eye looking off into the very distant future. And notice how Obadiah here reveals that there is a set day of judgment that is near upon all the nations. Near. When did Obadiah live? like 700 years before the birth of Christ. But yet he said it was near. Another prophet, Habakkuk, says this. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That's paradoxical. How can these two things be true at the same time? You know, there's an appointed time, and yet it's hastening, and yet it's slow. How does this relate? Well, what this means is that from man's perspective, because we're living within a state called time, the future appears to be far. But yet, from God's perspective, everything is so well-timed, like a fine clock, everything is moving click by click by click, and it's moving directly to that last day. It's an appointed time. The wisest of people know that our life is but a vapor. Obadiah not only described a specific form of justice, he, he talked about compensation for wrongs done, and he talks about justice in a distributive way. And he, he talks about God's justice coming upon Edom in the earlier sections of the book, but now he's also talking about that which is yet to come in the distant future, in our future, And we need to take a moment to kind of think about justice for a moment, about the wrath of God, and also how justice receives satisfaction. In verse 15, we see highlighted a singular kind of justice, and it gives me the opportunity to talk about three kinds of justice. What we see in verse 15 is a distributive justice principle of justice. Now, when we think about justice, we often think in terms of outcomes. We think about what we would like to see done to those who have oppressed us. 
we think in terms of punishments, but there is also a positive to this. There is also rewards. Those who have lost, we want to see something given back to us distributively as a reward. And Obadiah tells Edom that they will receive God's distributive justice as punishment, not as a reward. And in the next paragraph, which we won't get to today, we're going to see a distributive reward in which Israel will receive blessings because they have endured and lost much. And both of these are a kind of justice. There's another kind of justice that we live with every day. We may not know the term of it. It's a, a com- commuted. Boy, I practice this at home. A com- commutative, thank you. Commutative justice. Uh, it's not specifically in this text, but it's very, as I said, it's very much a part of our daily lives. It has to do with buying and selling, of exact getting a, a fair trade. Uh, Proverbs 11.1 1 talks about how important it is to God, his sense of justice, when he says a false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God, by his own nature, desires for contracts between laborers and employers to be fair, to be of equality with exchanges, at least agreed upon by both parties, that's something that's, that's just. That's a different kind of justice. There's a third kind of justice that I need to bring to your attention, which is very, very relevant because every other kind of justice that we live with fits into this category. Kind of like this is the summa. This is the, the one that stands over all. It's a public justice, and it's the highest expression I forgive me, but theologians will often call this a universal rectitude. We don't use the word rectitude much, but it's the idea that we have a sense of when something is right, when it presents itself to be wrong, and we have a sense of rectitude. We know what's right, we, what's straight, what's crooked, what's, what's wrong, and that's descriptive of the moral law that God has put within the universe that He has made. This public sense, we have a public sense of what's fair, of what's right and what's wrong. Now, we know that society wants to warp and change what has been known to be right and term it as something as if it were wrong, and vice versa. But we understand this sense because it's rooted and reflects God Himself. In His own nature, He has a moral rectitude of right and wrong. He cannot do that which is outside of His character. Abraham knew this to be true. When the angel of the Lord came to his tent on the way to bring destruction to Sodom and to Gomorrah, as he was becoming aware that God was going to send fire down upon Sodom, 
he asked God and said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer to that question, it's rhetorical, the obvious answer to that is yes. And it is true. God always does that which is right, whether He punishes or He gives pardon. Both of those are managed in the wisdom of God in ways which we can't fully assess. But because we know that God always does that which is right according to His internal nature, we can have a confidence that one day, when judgment does come, it will be done perfectly and be carried out as it should be. There's another aspect to this that we need to ask or talk about. It's, it's about wrath, because that is a form of God's judgment that we have to come to terms with. It's not something that we would really want to discuss, and frankly, it's part of that unwelcome aspect of the message of God's judgments. And so, sometimes we are tempted to associate with God's personal character that He is a wrathful, that's as, as if that's a part of His definite personality. But I would argue, and theologians do argue this, that when God pours out His wrath upon sinners, it is a maneuver of His holiness and not directly associated with His love. If you might say, it's actually a way of guarding His holiness, and He does this because He loves His holiness, and He does not want it to be perverted in any sort of way. So, when Abraham asks God to pardon the city for the sake of ten people, ten people that Abraham was hopeful were resisting the sodomy of the culture, God told Abraham that he would save the city if he could find but ten people. But yet there were not even ten people. But still, the Lord, the judge of all the earth, does do what's right, and he went into the city, and he pulled out by the hand four people and was merciful to them. When Lot lingered, the angels seized him and his wife, his two daughters, and led them out, as it says, by the hand. And it also says in Genesis 19, the Lord being merciful to him pulled them out. But when the sun rose the next morning, we also read that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, as I said, the wrath of God is a very difficult topic. It's easy to talk about mercy. It's easy to talk about grace. However, properly understood, we ought not see God's wrath as an abiding characteristic of His nature. So much as it is rather a maneuver of His holiness and His love to guard and to protect. We have to be very careful when we talk about the wrath of God not to interpret the wrath of God by our own personal experience with men. 
James 1.20 says that the anger or the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's true, because we don't have a holy, perfect nature. God always does that which is right when He brings punishment or even when He brings pardon. But what happens when debt, sin debt, is presented and God pardons? What happens with the the settling of that debt? Someone's got to pay for it, right? Well, in verse 16, we see an interesting metaphor that helps us kind of point us in the right direction. In verse 16, we see a cup being drunken. So the wrath of man was basically being poured out upon Israel through the ages. In verse 16, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so that all the nations shall drink continually, they shall drink and swallow and shall be though as they had never been. This is an analogy. This is talking about a very potent drink that causes someone to stumble, to keel over, and basically to collapse. This is a mixed drink that's powerful. Now, it's a common metaphor throughout the Old Testament. We're not familiar with it, but it's important for us to be aware of it. In Psalm 75, verse 7 through 8, it's used in this way. It says, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up of another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, the most potent And the metaphor describes almost like a party drug that someone takes that doesn't realize it's laced with fentanyl. It sets you reeling, and then all of a sudden, the lights go out. God's wrath will be poured out. His sulfur and His fire will be poured out. And you see hints of that in verse 18. You see the description of the house of Judah burning against those who have oppressed them, God's wrath will be poured out like a cup of potent drink. They will reel, they will reel as those whose throats are on fire from this cup of wrath. They'll not be able to put that wrath out. They'll be given a sick They'll be given a capacity, a physiological capacity to persist and even to burn for all of eternity. This wrath will be poured out. But we ask ourselves, shall not the judge of the earth do that which is just? We should be repelled by the thought of people burning for all of eternity. But it is not unjust of an infinite person, of infinite holiness, who's had his character turned against him through an infinite act of sin. Now, we might not consider our 
actions as being worthy of an infinite consequence, but that's because we compare ourselves among ourselves, and therefore we're not wise. When we commit an act of sin against God, it is treason against the God who created this world that we live in. It's infinite and requires an infinite sort of punishment. Now, wouldn't it be better, though, to overlook a fault, you might ask? Don't we think highly of those who turn the other cheek? I mean, why doesn't God do this? Well, He did. He did. But it requires a conversation with you. It's called the gospel. The gospel tells us that we're great sinners, but it also tells us that He is a great Savior. He is the one to whom we can turn who has drunk the cup of wrath for us so that we might not have to drink it ourselves. The bitter wine was what our Savior drunk at Calvary. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after he had broken bread and he had drunk with his disciples, he, he went out with his disciples into the night, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and three times he prayed these words to his heavenly Father, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, instinctively, we all realize, you know, it's, 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 it's very fitting when a person who humbles themselves before the law are then pardoned and forgiven. And we, we, we recognize that as being something that's noble. We recognize that that's something that's worthy. Yet, an earthly justice does not have the right to pervert justice by simply handing out pardons to anyone who simply says, I've done wrong, I, I admit, I plead guilty. You know, that's in our system of justice, that's reserved for one person. That's reserved for the President of the United States. Why would that be? Well, whether we like it or not, the President of the United States speaks for the whole nation. And when he executes a pardon, the whole nation absorbs the debt of the one who is pardoned. And that we live within a flawed system because we, we, we read about you know, people getting away or being pardoned at the ninth hour when, you know, the, the president's leaving office and he has a whole list of like 30 to 100 pardons to issue out to all of his friends. That rubs us the wrong way. And it ought to. But he has that right in a flawed system. But when God executes a pardon, he is existing within a perfect system in which the debt has been settled. The debt has been absorbed by His own Son, who drunk that cup of wrath that we deserve. Christ was sinless, and He was voluntarily giving of Himself for sinners. 
And it is with a deep sense of satisfaction that God looks upon His own Son and says, it's okay. I will forgive you for what you have done, provided you're looking at my son and seeing what he did. Do you see what my son did? He did that for you. I'll pardon you if you'll put your faith and trust in what my son did for you. It requires us, though, to humble ourselves and to believe that we are truly that sinful, that we are guilty, and we are in need of someone to take our punishment for us. We have to swallow our pride. We have to swallow our pride because Jesus swallowed our cup. That might be painful to do, but think of the alternative. To swallow the cup of wrath that is in eternity sitting there for you will be much greater than humbling yourself today and drinking down your pride and looking at the Savior. Jesus had a cup, and engraved on that cup was my name and yours. Now, the Ides of Justice are, for, are set, and they're set for settling up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I want you to you don't have to turn there immediately. We're going to go to that text in time, but just that one verse says this, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, if it is true, as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5, that everyone will stand before the judge of all the earth, then how do we reconcile grace? Well, first, when the judge of the earth exercised his, distribute, his distributive justice, and before he does so, he will find you. He'll find you like Lot. But those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus will be punished for all of eternity because of the infinite crimes they have committed. Now, there's another aspect to this, that if we are truly Christians, but we know within our hearts we have fallen so short, we have fallen so short of walking in a fruitful way. Maybe we are like Lot. We've, we've been severely compromised. We've lived in a culture that has so contaminated our way of life, we're barely producing any fruit. Well, there will be a, an accounting there, and in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14, we also see this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If you have been living a life that's really consuming about your own selfish consumption, that's all going to get burned away. There will be a revealing, a justice, a settling of debt. That will be true. But there will also be individual uh, commendations at that day. In Matthew 25, verse 23, we read this. We will, some of us will hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Now, the truly converted Christian, the rewards will not be punitive. They will not be inflicting any sense of pain. They'll just be, you just, you'll just go into heaven. You won't, as if by fire, all the other stuff will burn away. But for those who have suffered loss for the sake of Christ's kingdom in this lifetime, you have every right to expect that there will be great remuneration for your losses for the sake of his kingdom here. If people have walked over you because you refuse to, to compromise and be subjected to, you know, subject your family to the culture of this day, God will reward you for that if people start to turn on you. The losses that we have absorbed in this lifetime for the sake of the kingdom and His righteousness will be made, will be become remuneration, and there will be reward for us. Will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? Yes, He will, and He knows what His children suffer, and He will give us good things to come. Now, there is, in this text, we're still in Obadiah, we're still here in Obadiah, and I want you to see that in the last several verses, that when the great day of the Lord comes, there will be, in the end, as it describes here, no survivors. That's hopeful, isn't it? I apologize, but that's not hopeful. Although, is it? I think there is hope here. In verse 17, we see, and in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And the, the, there is truthfulness to the fact that there will be no survivors when that day comes, but the only way to escape, if you will, is not to remain in the household of Esau, but to change houses, to align yourself with the house of Christ. Joining a new household is really the only way of escape. Obadiah, he, he reflects upon the sorrows of his own people, and he, he sees that they have been severely hurt by Babylon. He knows, though, that God is gracious, He's merciful, He spared a remnant that you see in verse 17 that's going to come to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. But notice that the promise of a remnant is not provided to Edom. Edom is not promised a remnant. There's going to be no survivors. And upon return to Jerusalem, God would permit the house of Jacob to burn and consume them until they were gone. Now, this happened once historically before when Israel went into the land of Canaan. God appointed Israel to be like a, 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 a disciplinary tool for the people of Canaan. There was gross wickedness. I, 
I would, we would all blush to hear the kinds of gross immorality that was occurring in the land. Yet like Sodom, God was still merciful and spared people like Rahab, who had been a prostitute and all her family were spared from the wrath that was coming down upon Jericho. Why? Because she left her people behind. She left the house of Jericho and joined herself to the house of Israel. And Obadiah warns Edom and says, you know, there's no going to be any survivors in that day. Your only hope is to turn yourself to the true and living God. It's not a contradiction. We live in a world that, that tempts us to find our identity in this world. I mean, we all have identities that have been put upon us. We are all, I would say most of us here in the room, are American by birth. That is an identity that is put upon us. We live in Wayne County. That is something that is put upon us. And yet, there are some identities that we choose. We choose to align ourselves with our occupations, with our hobbies, with our pleasures, with our social media feeds. And all of this seeks to set us into a different kind of house. Here, we're encouraged not to remain in the house of this world, but to join ourselves to the people of God. If we do, then when the great day comes, we will be leaving this world behind by faith, and we will take upon ourselves the identity of Christ, and we will find ourselves to be spared from the day to come. Now, here we need to turn to 2 Corinthians, and I want you to turn with me there in your Bibles. It's the last text we're going to look at this morning, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, very briefly as we, we come to the end here this morning, we need to realize that in the household of Christ, if we join ourselves to the cross, we will be given new motivations. 2 Corinthians 5, that's on page 1109 in the Red Pew Bible. But in verse 10, that was the verse that we looked at before about the great judgment day, that we will all have to stand before the judgment day of Christ. Well, in verse 11, Paul says, knowing, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. If we can perceive within our hearts that there is a day of justice coming, then we will be concerned for others who are living in a different household. When we see the arsonist coming towards our neighbor's house, we don't sit by and just watch it burn. We act. We let others know. Flee. Come over to my house. Come and put yourself underneath of Christ. He will save you. And so when we talk about trying to save people, we talk about trying to bring them into a place where the wrath of God will not fall upon them. 
That's because we've been given new eyes. We've been given new motivations by the Holy Spirit. God fills our hearts with compassion for the lost. It gives us a new sense. And it is because of the love of God we know He has made another way. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is splendid. That's a brilliant display of God's love, and it's something that we want to tell others because we know that God is holy We also know that His love is great and has provided a way of escape. And so we are constrained. Look at verse um, 14 in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And, be, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the grand motivation that now enters into our hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit that causes us to have compassion for others. We know the love of God. We know how great an opportunity there is for the lost. And we We proclaim that, we share that, we tell people, we warn, and we entreat them, come and leave, leave Jericho before it falls, leave Sodom before it's destroyed, come and enter the ark before it's too late. We call, we plead. It's better to settle our debts now through Christ rather than later. Because the debts will be settled. And thankfully, Christ has settled our debts. That is, if you will not resist Him. That is, if you will not reject Him. He has provided a way. Now, we began this series, very short series, through Obadiah just a couple of weeks ago. And the very first message We encountered the idea and the importance of plucking your own pride before you are plucked. And the reason we don't do that is because we don't really believe that God exists. We live ungodly, and we live proudly. Ungodliness is living your life as if God doesn't really exist. You don't give any real thought to Him, you don't consider His will, and you don't consider your own need for dependence upon Him. In other words, God is really irrelevant. That's what it means to live ungodly. And we meet lots and lots of nice people. There are lots of very polite people in our network of those we know who are friendly, they're courteous, they're even actually more helpful and even surprise you at times at how helpful they are, and they're not even Christians. But God is not in their thoughts. That is a disaster waiting to happen. We need to bring God into their thoughts. We need to let them know that there is a day of which debts will be settled 
but they have already been settled for them. Come to the cross. We need to be like Abraham, pleading and entreating, Lord, would you please spare the city for just ten? We need to be praying for those around us. It's better to settle our debts now through Christ than later. That great day is set. It's settled. And when that day comes, there will be no survivors in this world. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time and your word this morning. I pray that we would not resist an unwelcome sound, an unwelcome sound of the reality of judgment, but that it would spur us to look to the cross to see that our debts have been settled. We thank you, dear Jesus, for your great grace. And so we now turn our hearts over to you, trusting that you know us even when there are times when we doubt our own selves, you are greater than our own hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would use your Holy Spirit to empower us to walk fruitful lives, that we would turn away from sin, and that we would seek to demonstrate the love of Christ to those around us. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.